Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Adequately Informed Podcast for June 28th, 2021. My name's Joe Hicks. And mine's Evan Kelly. And Evan Kelly, what are we here to do today? Well, Joe, today we are going to invite you listeners into a conversation. We are going to discuss a couple of topics, examine opinions wherever they may come from, doing our best to engage with the actual arguments and not any straw men or women or straw people. We are going to always do our best to stay in good faith, make sure that we don't assume any nefarious motives on the behalf of the ideas that we're considering, and hopefully in this process we will keep ourselves and you adequately informed. Yeah, you know, we uh, we acknowledge we don't know everything. We are not wholly informed, just only adequately. Uh, we get the idea, but not the whole picture, And but we believe that conversation can still happen without all the information. So... You know, we're not on the ivory tower. We're ne- we know that viewpoints other than our own um, can be correct or at least have some validity to it. So we try to take that into account as we have our conversations. Um, and, and before I ask Evan uh, what he wants to talk about today, I would just like to wish everyone a happy railroad days for all who observe the holiday. Um, you know, big time of the year. But hey, Evan. Yeah, Joe. What what do you want to talk about today? Well, shoot, Joe. We got like five topics that we got today. So um, where to start? Where to start? Um, do you want to start real depressing or do you want to ease into that? Pipe it up. All right. So I want to talk about a song that is sending, setting the internet ablaze. And I really actually am going to have to modulate my tone here because... Joe and I have been having like a fun pre-roll conversation that's been awesome, and um, the the subject that I'm going to talk about is very disturbing to me, um, and I guess I might as well throw a content warning in here for discussions of violence and um, cultural response to violence and um, mm-hmm. the death of children, because that's all what's coming up in the song Um called Who I Smoke by a group of rappers out of Jacksonville uh, with some weird names like Spinabends, Wappa with the Choppa, and uh, Youngin Ace. I don't know. These aren't uh, important people. Uh, I hope they don't become important people. But anyway, um, this is a real case of uh, me experiencing this through the backlash to the backlash to the thing that's just begun. Because a friend of mine texted me saying, what do you think of Vanessa Carlton's response to who I smoke? And I'm like, wait a minute, what? The- <laughs> we we got to take this back a couple of steps. <laughs> so then I had to go down this whole rabbit hole and I'll, I'll try to tell this narrative as succinctly as I can. Basically, a song got popular on TikTok and YouTube called Who I Smoke, where these uh, young black men are rapping and singing on a golf course, and it's a remix of Vanessa Carlton's A Thousand Miles, you know, the very up-tempo pop love song with the unforgettable piano riff, the do 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 yeah, you know, you, you know this song. Mm-hmm. Um, and in this song... Um, 
they are rapping about these very violent scenarios and the the chorus the hook if you will has them ask who i smoke and then say the names bibby tiki and lil nine and at first it's maybe a little bit unclear what this means so i i I had to look into this and apparently um it is a reference to smoking someone's ashes after either you have killed them or they've died but either way to to smoke someone's ashes i guess is a, a big sign of disrespect and looking into this a little more what you realize is that Bibby, Tiki, and Lil Nine are other rappers in Jacksonville who have been murdered. So now what we're left with is not a fun song about these bros hanging out on a golf course, but at best, a song celebrating and glorifying the murders of these young men. And some of them aren't even men. Some of them are straight up children. Bibby was 16 years old when he was murdered. That's that's the best case scenario. The worst case scenario is that with the graphic nature of the lyrics, Spinabens and Wapa with the Choppa are admitting to having committed these murders. That's unproven, but that is the worst case end of this scenario. And yet this song is becoming massively popular. It's it's not really released to streaming platforms or radio yet while they figure out the sample clearance. But um because it's hardly just a sample. It's yeah. It's like a cover with a spin, you know. Yeah. So yeah, Joe, I I told you that this is what we're talking about. So I presume you've you've like heard the song and you you, Yeah. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Um and so then um Vanessa Carlton, you know, was uh, people were hearing about the song and they were some people were getting up in arms about the content. And Vanessa Carlton was asked to respond on Twitter and she just decided to take it in a very weird direction. And she said, you know, why basically trying to say that there's nothing wrong with this song because white artists make violent music and movies all the time and we don't have a problem with it. And she tried to um, racialize the discourse and her example, her counterpoint example was the use of Steeler's wheels stuck in the middle with you during the iconic ear cutting scene in Reservoir Dogs. But um, <laughs> here, here's the difference is that Wait, there's uh, a difference, Evan? Yeah, Steeler's Wheel, <laughs> Jerry Rafferty wasn't cutting guys' ears off and then making that the song. You know, I, I think that there's a big difference between an artistic expression of violence in the abstract and then a song where we are partying and celebrating the murder of our rivals, which we may or may not have committed. And I think if anything, Vanessa Carlton's response is a an attempt to deflect and in, in a sense project some of her own white guilt from the fact that she now stands to profit greatly off of a song that celebrates the murder of a 16-year-old black child named Bibby. And so... I don't know. I don't want to. You guys know me. I'm Mr. Liberal. I, I like culture. I appreciate things. But I really do feel like 
this song crosses a very real ethical line and I hate that it's probably going to only grow in popularity. Well, isn't that the thing where like a thing can be like weird and destructive and kind of bad, but if it's unknown, then, you know, it just kind of lives off in the ether. Mm -hmm. Whereas when you call attention to it, then all of a sudden everyone's like, Oh, Hey, what's going on over here? I want to see the thing that people are talking about. Yeah, I mean, it got me to watch the video multiple times, you know, preparing for this topic, and that, I'm sure, contributes to the popularity, but, oh. And it oh. is kind of catchy, you know? It, there, the there thing is, is a, it, a... it's catchy <laughs> because A Thousand Miles is a catchy song. There's nothing, right. uh, that, that's the other thing, is I, I don't see any musical or lyrical value in this song. They're, they're, they're remix, like Joe said, is barely a remix. It's just a thousand miles with a little bit more percussive elements. And then, you know, the lyrics are, are not particularly poetic or artful. They're just braggadocious and morbid in, in, in a very disturbing way that I don't feel like is what they're intending. Because I, I was also well, reading up. Oh, go ahead. Go ahead, please. Well, yeah, because I mean, braggadocious can be fun, but like in this context, it's like, oh, oh, yeah. Like, and, and, you know, there, there's a lot of this debate about the ethics of this song are sort of centered around like, you know, is this just a fucked up fantasy that, that Spinabends and Wappa with the Choppa are indulging in, or is it an actual admission of guilt? Because the, the reality of what happened in the situation does, I think matter, but then on some level it almost doesn't because, um, I, I've done some minor research into this growing Jacksonville rap beef. Basically, there's two rival collectives who are taking shots at each other, both within their music and their diss tracks, and also with real actual guns, which their is guns. resulting on <laughs> yeah, <laughs> which is resulting in deaths on both sides. And and one of the main rappers who is on the opposite side from the group that made who I smoke is a, a rapper named Julio Fulio and Bibby's his little brother. And so like, it's definitely intended to be really personal. And again, just dancing on this kid's great. He's a child. He's 16 fucking years yeah. old. Like that, that's what really blows my mind about this. Um, and, and I guess the other thing too, is that, the person, the, the the chief person who's being investigated for the murder of Bibby is someone who's in that same collective as the people who made Who I Smoke. So, you know, there is a very real possibility that either the, the people who made this song are glorifying their own murders or at very least glorifying murders that they have intimate knowledge of. And at the end of the day, it's coming at the expense of black life. And I, I have just, I, I've not felt good about this ever since I got that text from my friend and I had to tumble head first into this sordid world of pop mashups and actual real life murder. So, yeah, it's. Um, well, and the one 
read up I did of this, you know, said it was more like, you know, kind of gang activity. And it's just like part of the fucked up nature of like how gangs come to be like, not to say that there, you know, aren't reasons why people do, but you know, you know, a lot of young men, predominantly black men who don't have a whole lot of, um, opportunity will join gangs at a very young age and then they're just like treated as just one of the gang you know there isn't like the kids table they're all (laughs) part of the gang you know so the you know uh this this is also like a trend that you know we see uh black children as much older than we see white children as and this is just almost like a, a, it's basically that as well. Um, and I mean, not even to say that murder of adults is like somewhat better, but it's not as bad. Like just murder of a murder of anyone is horrible, but then murder of like a very young person is just like an extra special tragedy. Yeah, I got a couple of things I want to add. One is that the tone matters, right? Yeah. Like. Even, I guess, taking what I think is sort of a bad faith counterattack and saying, oh, you know, Tarantino makes violent movies and uses music, which is like, okay, that's very surface level connection in the first place. Um, But I I don't think Tarantino is trying to say that cutting people's ears off is good, right? Like, that's not that's not the point of the media. But then in this, it's pretty it's pretty unequivocal that they're saying, like, these real life people are dead and we are happy about it. Yeah. And anyone this, who kind of unironically enjoys that is, is complicit in that celebration. Yeah. This, this video is saying that this fuck. Yeah. These murders happen. We're, we're going out and celebrating, you know, mm-hmm. they're, they're, they're having a raucous time. They're, they're upbeat. They're, they're, they have, massive fucking smiles ear to ear you know in the video that you know it, it's a celebration whereas i i mean just the fact that i don't know there's violence in movies is and other media like there is violence in other media but it's like there's either cause or it's an exploration of what that violence does in the world and not a glorification of it Mm-hmm. You know, it's not. And then also, even if it's a glorification of it, it's n- mostly not a glorification of real violence that happened. Yes. It's something in the abstract. Yes. And so it feels so callous to hear Vanessa Carlton try to say that we would accept glorification of real life murder on different racial lines when in reality she is the one who is guilty of overlooking the murder of black children in a very real sense and i think what you said is so accurate and merits discussion joe that you know we do try to age up black youth when it's convenient to us right like Mm -hmm. We, we want to overlook Bibby's death because he may have been in a gang or, or he may have been involved in perpetrating violence himself. 
But that's not how we would talk about a 16-year-old white kid who gets shot and killed. That's the real racial disparity here, in to my eyes. And I just hope that, it, it, you know, if you hear this and then you hear the song, you can at least have the full context and you're not swayed by the little piano ditty and you're not swayed by the absolute ignorance of the you know vanessa carlton and i I, it is my biggest hope that this song never gets any more unironic popularity than it already enjoys yeah 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 i mean i i think i've said more or less all that i wanted to say um i I just, you know, because the the biggest discourse around this is like, you know, is this just art that happens to be violent or is it something that is more sickening and disturbing in a real world context? And I land firmly on the side of this is really pretty disgusting and transcends the boundaries, the ethical boundaries of art. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's it's not great. All right, so we started off with something suitably depressing. Joe, uh, where, where do you want to take us next? Ooh, um, Evan, I want to double down on depressing. Um, oh, we're gonna yay. do the double down. Well, so I uh, I recently watched this uh, documentary on Netflix that anyone with a Netflix subscription can watch. Because it's first party and it's everywhere and not region locked, even though I don't think we have anyone who's outside of the United States region <laughs> listening. But anyway. Hey, we every once called... and again pop up on like Spain charts. So yeah, it's conceivable. Yeah, that... You one person in Spain, you. Um... <laughs> the movie, so... for, for the record, the full title of this movie on Netflix, it's called Crack, colon, Cocaine, comma, Corruption, Ampersand, Conspiracy. Yeah, we got all the punctuation in this I did, title. I, I didn't even realize until I was reading it in that cheeky way. But yeah, there is a lot of punctuation. Yeah. Um, and so this is a documentary that, well, I mean, it explores the crack epidemic in the United States. Like, what happened? And, you know, the crack, the the crack epidemic, the crack, crack problem... You know, it, it's something that I had heard about, you know, it, it, it's something that gets talked about peripherally in the United States or, you know, when we talk about uh, the, you know, the past of race relations in this country. But it was something that I never really quite knew all the details to or all the nuances of. And when I listened to this or <laughs> when I watched this, it was like. It was like an explosion of takes. Like I have a big old note on my uh, phone that just so much to talk about um, because it was I really liked how it went. Uh, the documentary went and like all the stuff that it brought up because it felt like it it brought to light so many um you know, things that happen in our society and it like was a very good encapsulation of it. Like, so, so how did the, all this start? 
So in like the late 70s, early 80s, cocaine was a big old, you know, it was a drug. It, I mean, it still is a drug, but it was the cool hip drug that a lot of people were doing. And cocaine, you know, people like because it gives you a big boost of dopamine. It gives you a boost of energy. And, you know, it, it's something, you know, you feel on top of the world when you're doing it. And cocaine was, you know, it was being smuggled in the country, but it was very expensive. Um, it was a very expensive drug. So really only the people on the top of the social, you know, economic ladder were able to enjoy cocaine. Um <laughs> And then, you know, sometimes in this discussion, it's almost like, uh, you know, uh, to create universal equity and drug access, which is not what this is about, but sometimes it feels like that. Um, so cocaine was available to people at the higher echelons of income. And, you know, it was a party drug. It was something that people did um, for fun or for performance um, at their work. And, you know, it, Wolf it, of Wall it was... Street. Yeah, yeah. And because of that, it was mostly able to be controlled or, you know, if people did, you know, have issues with it, they oftentimes had the resources to deal with it. So what happens? Well, cocaine is very expensive, but they found out a process to turn um, cocaine into a different, slightly different substance that was able to be smoked. And they called this crack. And they could take a small amount of cocaine and make a lot of crack out of it, which made it very cheap and accessible to be distributed. Um, you know, because instead of paying like a hundred dollars to get a few hits of cocaine, you could pay like five dollars to get a hit of crack. And so this was something that um you know, was really, really popular because these drugs make you feel amazing. And this hit at a time when um, the black communities in the United States were very badly hit um, in the economics, you know, in their economies. Um, you know, people talk about the inner city, but just like all around black communities were having tough economic times and there was a lot of unemployment and there wasn't a whole lot of economic opportunity afforded to, uh, these people and especially, uh, not black, you know, young black men. And so what ended up happening was people, there was a market there for people to really, um, uh, really wanted this drug because, you know, it makes you feel good and it's at a cheap price point. So, you know, you do a little bit of economics and, you know, you're like, oh, this is a popular product. You know, there's <laughs> going to be high demand. And then with high demand, you know, um, there became a whole lot of money to be made. So a whole lot of, uh, you know, predominantly young black men, you know, they looked at their economic opportunities in the, uh, you know, the above board, sector of the economy and you know it wasn't too great you know you could go work at mcdonald's and make 325 an hour and make maybe you know less than 30 dollars in a day's work or you could sell crack on the street and make over a hundred dollars and at the time at the beginning there wasn't a whole lot of police presence about this not like there is today so 
you know, there weren't a whole lot of risks associated with selling crack on the corner because one, a lot of people were buying Two, it was large swaths of society. And three, police either were bought off or this comes from an era where in the history of the United States, there's kind of been two different ways that historically black people have been policed. And one of those modes is by hardly ever getting policed and two, you know, getting over policed. And at the beginning of the crack epidemic, um, you know, when it was starting, it was basically at mode one, you know, whatever was happening in the black community, if it stayed there, then whatever, they just kind of looked the other way and, you know, didn't care so much. And it was just crazy. You know, it showed how like, if you have limited economic prospects for young people, they'll go into trades that are nefarious because of, uh, you know, the greater economic opportunity. It showed that when your, your, uh, <laughs> when your business has so much money riding on it and it's in the black market, you, you know, you're very willing to resort to violence because you have to make a show of it. Um, which is also something that happened. Um, you know, there were like people on there talking about how, you know, somebody would come on their turf of where they sold crack and they, you know, they would get violent. And it's like, well, you, you know, I was thinking about it for a second. It was like, well, you know, if, you know, uh, if someone has a store and then somebody opens up another store right next to them, like they're going to be pretty pissed, but because it's, you know, completely legal and, you know, there's no one to go to and, and people, you know, every, your business would be ruined if you murdered the other business owner. Like, you know, they don't do that. But like, if you're selling crack and there's so much money at play and there's no other way to really resolve it, I mean, they just resort to violence and young, and, you know, and especially, uh, younger people are much more, well, younger men are much more prone to violence, just like across the board, drugs or not. So it's just a recipe for everything to kind of explode. And then, uh, I, and I'm just going through a whole lot. Evan, you got anything to add right now? Oh, uh, no, not mad not way in the story. Okay. All right. So, so things get violent. Communities are addicted, like just very badly. And what ends up being the federal policy response is just bad, like bad for what was happening. But then also like I, you know, people talk about how the government responded and they'd be like, oh, it was just harsh. But it was like, I don't know. It, I, I feel like in some ways this was, you know, like the best case scenario. But what they responded with was militarizing the police, which in some sense made sense because, you know, the, the criminals, you know, the, the crack dealers were more militarized than they had been, you know, than your average criminal beforehand. So they had to step up their game, but then also basically made it so that it was seen that anyone who did crack was like the person at fault for the crack <laughs> epidemic. Um, so there is a big part of it where it was like um, they were talking with black women who seem to be especially hit by this whole thing. You know, if they ever became addicted um, because um, they 
basically were shut out of society. They were told they were a horrible person that, you know, they, they hurt their children and that like, there was one instance of a woman, um, you know, she went to go and get health care, and she was like, they asked her if she had ever used and she said yes. And like hoping to get treatment for her crack use and they instead the cops got called she got arrested in the hospital and her children taken away from her which was just you know you know uh, i feel like this we we do this all the time and sometimes it becomes a little passe but i mean it's like would we have done that to like a, a somewhat affluent white woman you know if if she admitted she had a drug problem you know would we arrest her in the hospital and like take away her children and i think the answer is probably no but it was it's just... especially tough in a medical setting like that you know people need to feel like they can be honest with their doctors to get the right type of medical care and so to abuse that relationship at a vulnerable time feels pretty low yeah it is i mean <laughs> So, so it just ravaged these communities. People got addicted and then they got to spending all of their money in it until basically they hit, they were unable to get any more money, um, in any way possible, you know, and, and, you know, would resort to crime and all that stuff, which I mean, makes sense if you're addicted to a drug that, you know, when you're not having it, you basically feel like shit. I mean, (laughs) I mean, it sucks that, you know, it's not great that you get addicted to the first place. But I mean, there are, like I said, there there are reasons why, you know, people are more prone to get addicted during time, you know, times of downtimes because, you know, they're looking for whatever little thing that they can to make themselves feel better. Um, so, you know, there starts to be the crackdown on it. And there there is, again, like a lot of violence. I mean, there was a lot of violence to begin with. And then there was even more violence when, you know, there was the attempt to crack down on things and it just became very tough. And it was a very, it was a situation that felt very untenable. Like, you know, the big buildup in police, you know, capacity and militarization was directly because of this, because it was a tough time um, when, and it was like, well, these people are militarized themselves. We need to fight them on those terms and not like, Um, you know, I mean, it probably would have been better if they had sought treatment to, um, you know, people who were addicted to crack or even just given them better economic opportunities, but that's not what would happen. And there was the, you know, the just say no campaign, which really made it seem, which really made it seem like, um, you know, it was your fault for, for, uh, having drugs because you must have just said yes. Um, (laughs) Which, yeah. yeah, it's just a weird time. And it feels like a prism at which we could look at the rest of our society. You know, it was like a microcosm of all these forces that have traditionally happened in the you know U.S. where we kind of overlook what's going on in the black community until maybe it starts pouring over into the white community. And then we like way overcorrect and then don't really care for the people who are affected. We just don't want it to be happening in the, the other communities. And 
Yeah, it, it, this documentary opened my eyes a lot, you know, and I'm someone who's also attuned to these things. So it was nice to finally know what happened in the crack epidemic. So I want to jump off on something that you only briefly mentioned, but I, I want to really dig into it because it was it. what I thought was the most interesting part of this documentary. And that is the hypocrisy of the just say no campaign, right? So the, the Reagan specifically Nancy Reagan, but with the full blessing and approval of Ronald Reagan, um, tried to treat drug addiction with a pithy little phrase that really didn't amount to anything. And the reason why this is so hypocritical and why fuck Reagan now and forever is that Ronald Reagan and his administration were complicit in the funneling of drugs to the United States in order for there to be a supply of crack to even be sold to people. And so we need to go through a little bit of history to understand this full process. Basically, uh, it has to do with U.S. imperialism and us sticking our noses in places that we had no business being. Um, but during the Reagan administration, the people of Nicaragua elected a Marxist government. And of course, any sort of communism, Marxism anywhere is our business, I guess, according to Reagan and conservative hegemony in the United States. And so um, we wanted to fund the Contra rebels who were attempting to overthrow the Marxist Sandinista government. And this was forbade by Congress. And so, yeah, because when we say we, it's really the Reagan administration who wanted to fund the Contras. Yes, because Con you're, you're right. That's a fair distinction because Congress said, no, no, no. <laughs> but Reagan yeah. was like, fuck that. And so Reagan went under the table, illegally sold military equipment to Iran and then used the profits to fund the uh the Contras in Nicaragua. But Congress found out about this too, and it was a huge scandal, and they put a stop to it. And so Reagan couldn't do this backdoor arms dealing anymore, but he still needed a way for the Contras to have money to run their military operation to overthrow the Sandinistas. So the U.S., uh, under the aegis of the Reagan administration, essentially turned a blind eye to drug importation to the United States from Nicaragua. So all of the money that was being made selling crack cocaine in American cities was being funneled back to support anti-Marxist rebels in Nicaragua. So on one hand, you have Ronald Reagan saying that, you know, crack cocaine is the scourge of the country and, and it's your responsibility and your fault and you have to say no to drugs and you are unfit if you are using drugs, while at the same time actively allowing the drugs to come into the country, hoping that they will be sold so that the profits can fund his own extrajudicial military operations in a foreign country that he has no business dealing in. So yeah. um, that's that's what's really fucked up about it to me. Like, uh, there are some people who still think that Ronald Reagan was a good president or that he was uh, at least benignly well-intentioned. And the truth is that he's a consequential president, but we're living with the fallout of eight years, well, 12 years with the continuation of the Bush regime 
uh, you know, the first Bush, we're, we're living with the consequences of that hypocrisy and that policy. We see it in the war on drugs and the lingering effects on hyper-incarceration that that has. We see it in the reforms to the tax code that have absolutely hollowed out the middle class of this country. And, you know, this is just one more example of how we are learning after the fact, the way that Reagan fucked all of us. Yeah. Well, and just in some ways, you know, to give a charitable view. Okay, give your charitable view. Well, to the Just Say No campaign, not to the hypocrisy. Like, like, let's take the, a more secular version, like not, not like connected to what was going on with the CIA and all that kind of stuff. The idea of just say no comes from like it almost feels like a way you would talk about what was going on in the world with cocaine. Like it, it was something that was addictive. And if you partook in cocaine, you were doing it as part of your celebration or trying to make yourself even better at the job that was like high level. And I'm sure there are people lower down in the social rungs who also did cocaine, but like it was still mostly the upper echelons who got to enjoy cocaine. And it was like people weren't seeking refuge from their shitty lives in cocaine. They were making their cool lives even cooler for the (laughs) most part in some ways. And maybe, maybe there is some, um, hurt within the cocaine community, you know, using community that I am overlooking, but this has been my read of it so far. And if it's something like that, you know, just say no feels like an adequate policy response or, you know, slogan response, you know, it's like, Well, you know, you could let the good times go and you don't really need cocaine because, you know, you're already having a good time and it's it's a little bit extra danger that you probably don't need to deal with. Whereas the crack problem was people who were leading lives that were much rougher, you know, Um, they were talking about in the documentary, you know, people who barely were able to scrape enough together to survive and then also have this drug habit that, you know, you know, they were barely scraping by and this drug habit make, uh, made their lives feel good. Like at one point they cut to a, uh, you know, a, uh, cameraman on the street bet during the crack days. And this one kid was like, yeah, I just smoked uh, a couple minutes ago and now I feel like I can walk to the moon. <laughs> and I was like, like it was giving these people, uh, you know, a, a respite from, you know, the lives that they were leading and they did it because they were feeling pretty desperate and just wanted to feel good and they didn't have much else going on. So saying just say no made it sound like they had way more. I mean, you have agency in whether you choose to do drugs or not, but we know just generally if people are down in their lives, they're more likely to engage in these bad behaviors. And it's not because they're just kind of selfishly looking for something. It's because they really do feel bad and they're looking for like, you know, when you get down and feeling bad, you're looking for just about anything that can make you feel good. And crack made you feel real good. 
and to make it seem like the only thing, um, you know, separating the, the crack addicts and a normal person was the moral fortitude to just say no once. Like it, it, it just feel, yeah, it feels yeah, it's patronizing. stupid. Yeah. Yeah. It's not, it's not, um, taking the issue at, you know, charitably. Like, it's a bad faith suggestion. Yeah. I mean, it, I mean, maybe, maybe it helps. <laughs> I mean, maybe it helps in some way from getting worse in the future, but it certainly doesn't help the people who are doing it. Like, not while at the same time you're slashing spending on social services across the board. Well, right. I mean, it's like if, I don't know, <laughs> we were having a, a skin cancer epidemic and people were really, you know, people were dying all over because of, I don't know, some something going on in the world that's a little different. And we decided to have a campaign was like, just don't go outside in the sun. <laughs> Like, yeah, maybe, but this isn't interfacing with the problem at the level that it's happening. Yeah. It, it was almost like the, the least we can do response. <laughs> so, and, and I want to go into like another thing. So there was, um, this is also where in the, you know, in a time where these uh, drug bills and crime bills happen in Congress that set the stage for mass incarceration years later. But like at the time, there was a sincerely held belief and like an understanding. And in the academics, there was this idea of like crime and punishment, um, where it was thought, you know, there's, um, there are a certain amount of crimes out in the world and there's a, and there's a certain amount of punishment that needs to be happened, but those two things can kind of happen interchangeably. So the idea was that like crime would be suppressed just the same if like you caught, like there were 10 crime, you know, instances of a crime happening. And then if you caught all 10 people, and sentence them to one year that would have the same deterring factor if you caught one person but gave them a 10-year sentence um, because the net punishment would still be the same. And this was actually some like Nobel-winning economics that was done. And it turned out to be like not true. <laughs> <laughs> um, so what ended up happening was all these people ended up going to jail for very, very, very long times. And, you know, there was almost like, and, and people talk today about how, um, crack was, um, had a much higher mandatory minimum than cocaine did almost a hundred times more, um, more strict than what the cocaine rules were. And there, you know, the best, I mean, the way it kind of they say in the documentary is that it really was like mostly a byproduct of just really fast legislating that this quirk happened. But then there was also this thought that, you know, crack seems to be having a whole, you know, much bigger impact on society. So we need to punish it more where that just doesn't seem to be the case. But 
But this goes to the whole thing with the higher level of policing and putting people, you know, drug users in jails and not just drug dealers is that in America, we generally have this belief that if we want something to get better, we have to sacrifice something or things have to be bad just all around for things to get better. So like if there's a scourge of, um, not a scourge, I mean, a breakout of drug use, that what we have to do is go and have a, a, a war of violence against it that is very tough on people. But, you know, that's the necessary evil that we need to do in order to make something better, whereas we could, like, find treatment for them and try and create economic opportunities so they're not, like, wanting to become dependent on these drugs. But that would be seen as, like too good like if something there's just a feeling out there that if something's bad that there has to be something equally bad to mitigate it and, and it i just think it can't. also plays into the rhetoric of dessert right we want to treat people how we think they deserve to be treated and if someone is causing a problem or even if they're part of a social problem there's a real reluctance to give them something to try to fix the problem we want to take something away from them we want to penalize them we want to take their freedom and we feel you know just sort of within our collective psyche that feels like a more apt response than like you said increasing opportunities for treatment increasing economic opportunity that feels and and this is kind of i think loops back to a lot of tension within all of american political and social life we don't want to feel like someone is getting something that they don't deserve even if giving it to them improves conditions for everyone well and it, it's also i think part of it is that with um a lot of these like government institutions and like welfare and things that are out there to help people like since the system is generally not super generous to all people, there there becomes a real thing where people will be like, hey, like, I kept my life on the straight and narrow and it's been tough and I'm making it. Why, why am I not getting help when people who, like, are fucking up? get help like should i have fucked up in order to get help um which i mean you it's you know for some people that comparison is just like stupid because it's like why are you can you know why are you comparing your upper middle class life to someone who's like barely able you know enough to keep uh you know a roof over their head and food in their belly but then, you know, it, it, it'll come out in people who are like close to that, you know, um, you know, people who are just able to make sure that they have, uh, you know, a house under over their, you know, a roof over their head and food in their belly. But, you know, if they strayed too much further, they wouldn't be able to, but then they would also be able to get assistance. So it, it's, it's a tension that happens in our society, you know, uh, and when we have a society that is not as, um, you know, not as giving it, you know, there gets some tensions of who gets what and who's merit, you know, merits help where, you know, the, 
you know, we like to think that we reward people who do good things with things, but then also we need to help the people who, you know, aren't able to do good. So it's tough. It's tough, but yeah. So I, I thought the documentary was good. I felt like it put, um, put a lot of things that were kind of hazy in my knowledge into concrete terms. And it's just, uh, um, I mean, I could say a microcosm, but I think it was a macrocosm of a lot of things <laughs> that happen in our society. Like it isn't just some small niche blase thing that happened. Like this was a national movement and a national crisis in the eighties. So it was, it was definitely a time. Yeah. <laughs> Fuck Reagan. Yeah, so so we did our traditional uh Joe rambles for for <laughs> 30 minutes on this subject. Um so yeah, you got anything else you want to say? Uh not not on this topic, but we have plenty more to get to coming up oh. after the music. Diddle diddle do. We're, 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 who wants to be a millionaire now? <laughs> Final answer. Oh, so that's what, my Regis. What, you think this is a good yeah. Regis Philbin impersonation? <laughs> a little too intense. Um, what do you mean? He's always intense. Uh, so what's our next topic, Evan? <laughs> uh, let's, let's respond to our viewer mailbag uh from listener michael always happy to hear from michael and michael is trying to ask a question about representation within entertainment michael writes afro-latino individuals are upset within the heights and are criticizing lin-manuel miranda for his lack of casting diversity and Miranda issued an apology to those who criticized him, but responded that In the Heights was a project that represents the community as a whole. And then Michael draws from Lin-Manuel Miranda's Twitter, where Miranda wrote, I hear that without sufficient dark-skinned Afro-Latina representation, the work feels extractive of the community we wanted so much to represent with pride and joy. In trying to paint a mosaic of this community, we fell short. I'm truly sorry. So then Michael adds his own commentary. I feel that this is a slippery slope with the film. In the Heights was a very successful Broadway production and had high expectations as a film. And Michael doesn't think that Lin-Manuel Miranda has anything to apologize for. And he wants to hear our thoughts. So I'll go ahead and take this first. Um, so I think that there's kind of two ways to look at this, Michael. Um, one way is sort of to say, yeah, In the Heights is despite maybe not being as intersectional as it could have possibly been, is still a win for representation where a lot of people of color were given leading roles and it's a story about people of color told by people of color. And like I said, the intersectional details are not perfect, but it still is a sight better than most other contemporary Hollywood representations and specifically Hollywood musicals that you see make it to the big screen or in my case, HBO max. Um, mm -hmm. And so on one hand, yeah, it seems a little short-sighted and unfair to make this specific criticism, especially because um, 
not every story is about every person, right? This is a story mm-hmm. that happens to be about Usnavi, and I can't remember any other character names. But nonetheless, um, it's there's there's only a handful of main characters within that story, and if they happen to be cast in a certain direction, um, that might not be the worst thing. I think that I, I was kind of having a conversation about my my brother or with my brother about this, um, specifically regarding friends, where he was like, I'm sure, yeah, I'm sure there's plenty of groups of six people in New York who happen to be all white, but that doesn't mean that friends should have had that cast be all white. And and I, I see what he's saying, but I, I want to rephrase it slightly. I don't think there's any problem with the six main friends all being white. The problem with friends, though, is that throughout the course of its run, they have maybe two black guest stars who have any sort of importance. Like, that is the true problem. But In the Heights isn't a long-running sitcom. In the Heights was one film that told the story of one group of people, and so... I think that can and should insulate it from some of these critiques. But here's the other way to look at it, Michael. Lin-Manuel Miranda sets himself up as Mr. Diversity and Mr. Intersectionality. And he is all the time talking about the transformative power of representation and the importance of inclusion. And if you are going to put yourself out there that much and try to score points for being Mr. Social Justice Advocate, and then your own work is not up to that same representative standard, I think the criticism that you're going to absorb is largely fair. And if Lin-Manuel Miranda wants to be the woke king of Broadway, then he actually has to anticipate these criticisms and preemptively respond to them at every phase of his creative process. But what's your take, Joe? Well, I feel bad because I did not prepare as much as I really should have for this. But just kind of generally, it's like, uh, you know, the representation thing, again, it, it really comes down to like, I don't know if I can make an objective call on what should have been done, Um, because, again, you know, it's a piece of art. You get to make it yourself, uh, you know, and, and, you know, the people who create it get to make choices on it. But then also the people who consume it can make criticisms about it of what they kind of wish had been in it or had been part of it, especially if they see themselves in that in that piece of media. But, you know, they, you know, see something in their lives represented in that media media but not represented in the way that they wanted. Um, So it, you know, it's kind of like a two-way street, you know, you can choose to, you know, cast certain ways or, and then some people will have backlash or, you know, you can choose to avoid it. You know, it's, it's choices that people make. Now, I don't know about the specific film, whether it should have, but I mean, I, from some of the cursory Google searches, I mean, it seemed like it was still a pretty diverse cast compared to most other things. Well, the the specific charge here is colorism, that the mm-hmm. Latino roles in the film were predominantly light-skinned in casting as opposed to having darker-skinned or Afro-Latinos 
taking some of those roles. That's the specific charge mm-hmm. again. But 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 that that gets to my point about frame of reference, right? It is a diverse cast based on Hollywood standards, but there's this other level of expectations that some people had that it did not meet. Right. And I mean, yeah, it, it's 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 complex where like oftentimes I mean with something like this I don't know if there is a right answer for everything but you know individuals can have their own opinions about it but then again like you said you know Lin-Manuel Miranda wants to be the guy who you know champions diversity and specifically builds his brand on that and tries to score points for that yeah right um, you know, if it was, you know, even if it was someone who's like, we're trying to be diverse, but, and this happened, you know, that'd be one thing, but yeah, he's the guy who stakes his identity on it. Um, so, um, I, 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 I don't know. I'll say, <laughs> I'll say it. I don't have a strong take either way on this. Um, I'll admit my, uh, my, uh, miss unknowings my unknowings so there there's uh there's the group of perspectives michael i hope we answered your question um if not you you know how to find us <laughs> yeah yeah and everyone else you know is are, are these discussions sparking anything in you always feel free to send us an email podcast at adequatelyinformed.com or reach out to us directly we uh we, we know proven, most of you yeah we've proven <laughs> time and time again that uh we will respond on air. Yeah. Yeah. So, Evan, what else do we have to talk about? Well, uh, I think we got a couple of adequately informed updates, uh, given some new context on previous stories. First of all, the Supreme Court has come down with a ruling in that Pennsylvania cheerleader case. Yeah, they have. And it's interesting. <laughs> um, because they... They uh, they ruled in favor of the cheerleader who said fuck cheer, mm-hmm. and um, basically they rule. It seems to be a ruling that a the school can really only regulate speech outside of school if it is disruptive to the learning experience. That seems to be the the bar that they're trying to establish for. Regulation of speech of students outside of school. Um, You know, it didn't seem to get into um, a lot of the other things that we were talking about um, because, you know, you have to choose an angle and this is the angle that they chose. Mm -hmm. Um, So if it if it seems to be um, in this court's decision, and I think they ruled unanimously, which it was was eight one Clarence Thomas dissented. Yeah. Yeah pretty close um but it was that you know uh, a school can make punishment for speech outside of school if it rises to the level of causing disturbance in the classroom but if it doesn't then it is permissible speech so i guess in this instance they see it as that saying fuck cheer does not harm the learning experience had at the school um so it does not rise to the level of being constitutionally valid for the school to punish that speech 
Yeah, so I was wrong. I did not have a read on it. There's a reason why I'm not a legal scholar. Um, never feels good to be alone with Clarence Thomas on, on one side. So <laughs> I do think it's interesting, though, about the way that the court ruled and how a lot of decisions are coming down where it does seem like despite these fears of polarization of the court, it does seem like the justices are able to build consensus on more issues than you'd think. And maybe that's hopeful, you know? Mm -hmm. I think also part of it is that um, even throughout history, um, the courts, you know, the justices on the courts can kind of read the room of when their own institutional uh, backing is slipping underneath from them and do some things in a, in order to help uh, mitigate the problems that people see with them that, you know, people believe is cause for reform. So you're sort of saying that, um, you know, Kavanaugh and Coney Barrett are like, oh boy, it looks like people are talking about packing the court if we don't start ruling with these liberal justices. So they do that? I mean, in some way, but then also, you know, sometimes the Less goofy justice. than what I said. Yeah, but. yeah. <laughs> Um, it's not necessarily one-sided. It's just that, um, yeah, justices may moderate a little bit or or not go as uh, balls to the wall with their opinions if they um, have fear that the institutional sanctity of the Supreme Court is on shaky ground. I mean, yeah. this was... I mean, this was basically what happened back in, uh, you know, during the New Deal era. I mean, there is some conversation of whether this ha actually happened or not. But, you know, the court had been striking down a whole lot of New Deal programs and and FDR threatened to pack the court, didn't actually. And they were like, OK, we don't want that. <laughs> so and we really only exist in our current form because a congress long 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 ago decided that so and they could decide to change it another way so we're going to do what we can to keep it as it is and so yeah it does seem like a lot of decisions are coming out right now where uh, they're more unified and that may be a trying to show a force um, try and get back to um, some older styles of doing the Supreme Court where it was more more seen as just calling balls and strikes or something like that and trying to come out as a full force and not just um, really be seen, trying not to be seen as just strictly political. Yeah, so... Good, good update. Very interesting. Yeah. And I think uh, we just have one more thing to talk about. That's right. Uh, Adequately Informed's fav second favorite program, Rick and Morty, is back. I'm calling BoJack our first favorite. Um, <laughs> and uh, season five premiered last week, just after we recorded. Uh, what, what did you think of Mort Dinner Rick Andre? I liked it. It was a fun episode. And... I don't know. It feels weird that like it feels like every season opening it's like you get into it and I almost feel baited that 
there are certain like storylines that are going to be explored <laughs> but then by the by the end of the first episode they're like haha we got you it's not that yep and then and then but then somehow it still sets up the rest of the season and you you, you see it come out later um i mean i guess yet to be confirmed if that happens but but yeah, the first episode just kind of a whirlwind and trying to figure out what it's going to be, and then it's like, haha, we're back at zero, baby. <laughs> yeah, I thought it was okay. Um, I think I have to accept that I'm never going to like any more Rick and Morty as much as I liked season two. Like, I, I have to accept that that Rick and Morty is gone, and I can embrace the the current Rick and Morty for what it is, or I can be upset every week. Um, but I don't know. I, I feel like, like you said, the the way that Harmon and Royland approach continuity is a little bit infuriating, right? Like they didn't even address any of the clone Beth stuff from the end of season four, like just not interested in it. Um, and, you know, he, he gets mad at Mr. Nimbus for trying to establish canonical backstory, which is a funny joke. I, I liked that joke. Um but I think the thing for me with this episode is that I really liked kind of the basic sci-fi premise of that world that progresses through time more quickly and that evolves to hate Morty. And that's like their religion <laughs> that, mm -hmm. that, that worked for me. But then all the stuff back at the house was less interesting, like Beth and Jerry's thing where they watch porn together i i don't really think it's that funny of a joke and i don't think it really is that impressive for their character development um morty and jessica like is is really kind of on its last legs and Harmon has said that morty will get a new love interest this season so if this was the farewell to jessica i'm fine with that and you know mm -hmm. the whole rick nimbus thing like you said i don't have any hope that they're actually going to develop rick's kind of arc with that so I, I wish we could have had more fun in the sci-fi world if we were going to go that route yeah i don't know like i you mentioned didn't even tie into anything from yeah you know, i i don't even you know to be honest i don't really remember last season and you know i'm just i i think uh my expectations for the show are no long you know i'm not like obsessively watching the show anymore mm -hmm. um like i watched this new episode but i didn't like i don't know if i went back and watched old episodes anytime between last season and now and i don't think i did you know, either yeah yes and i hardly remember it but you know it's just it's just i don't know just fun it's um you know when the first two season happened it was like there was it, it was it was like better than it had any right to be mm -hmm. and then and then it was like oh there may not be as much in the tank as there once was and so i'm just kind of like oh i'll just go along for the ride have fun you know this is something that i liked and i liked very early on and it's still good and fun and has some you know does the thing where it's like oh you take some idea and go along with it and haha you know have some fun with it so i had fun with it and i enjoyed the episode i'm inching towards that level of acceptance joe i will get there <laughs> <laughs> so yeah i i'm not gonna you know riot in the streets about my rick and morty I'm not gonna go yell at a mcdonald's employee about not having the sauce you know <laughs> There are no memes that I feel like I need to engage in. It's just, it's just fun. 
Hey, in the show notes, you should link my old article about Rick and Morty. Let's try to get that boosted again. Ooh, ooh, get some boost. That's actually one of the most popular articles I ever wrote. I'm proud of that. Nice. Well, then you should send it to me. (laughs) All right, I will. It'll be linked in the show notes. Yeah, everyone read why I didn't like Rick and Morty season three. Yeah. Um... So, uh, you had anything else? I think that was everything we had to talk about, right, Evan? Yeah, that's it. We did it. We did it. We had a lot to talk about. Oh, man, and this still isn't even one of our longer episodes yet. <laughs> <laughs> we talked a lot about a lot, and we're getting more economical about it. I, th- I think, though, knowing that we had so many topics is what kept us economical, you know? Yeah, yeah. So with that, we'd like to thank everything for every- <laughs> we thank like everything thank- all of the time. I would like to thank everyone for listening. Uh, we really appreciate your downloads and your listens and your engagement and all that fun stuff. We'd like to thank Anthony Hish for the music. Um, but my name's Joe Hicks. And mine, as always, is Evan Kelly. And we hope that you've been adequately informed.